Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is Episode 8. Brian Post is one of America's foremost child behavior experts, and he's the co-founder of the Post Institute for Family-Centered Therapy. The Post Institute works with adults, children, and families struggling with early life trauma and the impact on the development of the mind-body system. Brian has authored or co-authored several books, including From Fear to Love, Parenting Difficult Adopted Children, and Beyond Consequences, Logic, and Control, a love-based approach to helping attachment-challenged children with severe behaviors which is on my must-read list and was the focus of the Flourishing Foster Parents Summer Book Series. The Post Institute also has a vibrant Facebook community where Brian publishes Brian Post's Daily Dose, short words of guidance and encouragement for parents who care for challenging children. My family has benefited so much from the work of Brian and his team, and I was thrilled when he accepted my invitation to be today's guest. Be sure to visit postinstitute.com and facebook.com slash postinstitute for links to all of the resources I've mentioned and more. And with that, here's my conversation with Brian Post. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, um, first, before I get into like the interview portion, I, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. I, um, I told my guest, if you listen to last my last episode, I actually said that you were going to be my next guest. And I was like, I can't believe he said yes. <laughs> I believe in manifestation. I appreciate that so much. And she and I are both uh, foster parents who both uh, coach other foster parents. And both of us have recommended Beyond Consequences, Logic and Control over and over and over. When I told her that, we kind of had like this foster mom fangirl moment. Because we're like, <laughs> Brian Post, you know, it's like in certain worlds, you're like, you're the man. So, um, Maybe you're you're the man in every world, probably. But um, anyway, that's cool. I'm glad I could glad I could help out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, to get sort of started with this conversation, I would love to ask you the first question that I ask all of my guests, and um, and that is, when did your life first intersect with the foster care world? So my life first intersected with foster care when I was probably two to three days old. So I was adopted. So I went into foster care as an infant. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how long I stayed in, in, in the hospital. I don't think long. I had a good birth. Um, but, yeah, I was in foster care pretty quick. Okay. And then what did that journey look like? Were you, so you say you were adopted. Were, did, were you immediately placed for adoption or was there kind of the. I was with two, I was with two families mm-hmm. and then I was adopted by my parents. Okay. Okay. So this, mm-hmm. this goes way back for you. And I, I think I, I thought I saw that somewhere, but I wasn't sure. I, I didn't find that information when I was kind of getting ready for today's conversation. So I wanted to make sure I was right about that. Um, so you were adopted out of foster care. And then the next question I have is like, when did you decide to devote your life to helping parents who, uh, parent children with behavioral challenges, which are largely a lot of times people who have adopted, um, yes. Yeah. yeah, That's a great, a great number. Um, I think it came probably in graduate school. I, um, got my bachelor's degree and really 
didn't have any idea what I was going to do. So I, the natural, the next natural step to keep me from having to go to work was to do more school. <laughs> so I went and got my, my master's degree and I met a, a guy, um, his name was Lawrence Anderson and he had been in social work for 40 years and he would became my mentor and he was a therapist. And so one day I was walking across the lawn at the school of social work at university of Texas in Arlington. And he said, Hey Brian. And I was like, yeah. He said, where are you doing your um, clinicals at? And I said, I have no idea. He said, why don't you do them here? I said, okay. And that was the community, the community clinic. And so that was my first experience with, um, with working with people. And I think after that, that's, you know, it was kind of a, a done deal. Wow. He uh, helped me move into a couple of different positions with the state. I did adoption home studies, and then I worked for another company called Lena Pope Home, and they do, it's like a boys boys home, boys and girls home, um, did intensive um, outpatient and in-home therapy for them. And then I worked for juvenile probation for a while. So you have seen, you've seen a lot, and that comes through, I mean, that definitely comes through in your writing and in your videos and in all of the resources that you provide. Um, You, I've been through a lot of parenting programs, and just by way of introduction, because I didn't really tell you anything about my story, but my husband and I, um, we've adopted three children from foster care, and we continue to foster other kids, and um, we... uh, and and I, I've become passionate since my first year of foster parenting about how little parent, like, I guess, let me just back up and say, um, I didn't know what I didn't know until mm-hmm. I was, you know, I had a little child in my home and I had absolutely no idea how to handle what was coming at me. And I kind True. of got on this fast track um, crash course of trying to learn everything I could. And what I realized is that foster parents, well-meaning, want to help, want to, you know, serve, want to love, and then are just going into it completely unequipped. And it was around that time mm-hmm. that I, um, that I discovered your book, uh, um, the, uh, Beyond Consequences, Logic and Control and read it then. Mm-hmm. And now I lead people like through doing discussions of, of the contents of that book. I, you know, I recommend it to everybody I know. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about some of the things that you talk about in that book. And then I would also love to hear about your fear to love um, book and project and the things that you're doing. with Sure. Absolutely. So what I tell people when I'm talking about um, why, one of the reasons I love uh, beyond consequences so much is that it kind of distills the content of a book, like the body keeps the score where you take a lot of the Mm -hmm. research on trauma and how deeply it goes into a person's body and how early it can Mm -hmm. get in there, you know, from in utero, um, it's, it's like a primer on childhood trauma, and then it, it but it, but it also gives very practical um, tips. But it's also very different from a lot of the other things that are out there. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk a little bit about the stress model as an introduction to your book for people who maybe aren't that familiar, and maybe we can go from there. Sure, uh, the stress model is a theory of human behavior that I came up with over twenty years ago that actually 22 years ago now, I think, that just it just kind of came together as a culmination of some experiences that I had and a lot of research I was doing because, you know, I was fortunate because it was the end of the decade of the brain um, where all the, you know, explosive trauma science was kind of coming out. And um, 
it just it just kind of came to me at, when I when it, I, I was actually in Canada and I was directing a uh, treatment facility there. And this the question I've been asking, and I think that it's such an important question that we hadn't asked it or we hadn't answered sufficiently because um, I had been studying the field of attachment for, for several years and I kept asking the question, attachment is a great concept, but what is it that leads to attachment? What makes attachment possible? I said, you know, all this, all this literature is on, you know, creating these attached, securely attached children and, and all this business, but what is it that makes that possible? And so after three years of kind of mulling that question around in my head and, and looking for the answer, one morning it just struck me. I was driving over this big bridge in Canada. It was kind of raining, and all of a sudden stress. Just, it was this light, light bulb moment. I always say God tapped me on the head and just said stress. As long as you're stressed, you can't develop attachment. In order to develop attachment, you have to be regulated. And that was really the foundational seed of the stress model. The stress model says all behavior arises from stress, period, simple, good or bad. It all arises from stress. Stress is, is the fuel that drives the engine. And when we when we are just going along day to day, we're operating in what Han Soleil called eustress or just the stress of life, uh, good stress. And then when we go outside of our window of tolerance, we move into distress, which is where all all health ailments, physical, emotional, spiritual, um, come from. And so the stress model just kind of disseminates all that to say that all behavior arises from a state of stress. And in between the behavior and the stress is the presence of a primary emotion. There are only two primary emotions, love and fear. Those are your only two primary emotions. Everything else is just a feeling. An emotion is energy and motion, and your body only knows two energetic states. It knows a thriving state, which is a love-based state, and it knows a survival state, which is a fear-based state. So stress and fear really are tied in hand-in-hand. One is really interchangeable with the other. The moment you become stressed, your cellular system constricts into survival, which then generates the emotion of fear. And then a feeling is a cognitive perception of an emotion. So your brain your brain perceives an energetic state and then labels it as a feeling, and that's how we get all the feelings on the feeling chart. So when the stress model says all behavior arises from a state of stress, and in between the behavior of stress is the presence of a primary emotion, love or fear, it also says it's through the expression, the processing, and the understanding of the fear that we can calm the stress and diminish the behavior. My focus is not on behavior. My focus is on the stress that manifests the behavior and, and the fear that manifests the behavior. And I feel like that's, that's the paradigm difference. That's the bottom-up approach as opposed to the top-down approach. When you understand that stress manifests behaviors, why would you spend any time working on behaviors? But we do. We do, and the reason we do is because of our brain, the way our brain's wired for threat, and I talk about that too. Yes, yes. This is something that I can't emphasize enough is so important for uh, anyone parenting a child from trauma. So I this this 
podcast and the work I do is primarily aimed at foster parents, but we know that foster parents move into adoptive parents a lot of times. And so it's kind of that whole world. Um, but you might also have a child who's going through the trauma of going through a divorce. Or um, I actually spent a long time on the phone a few weeks ago with a father who finally left an abusive wife and her children, their children, are now going through a lot of the same types of behaviors that our kids deal with, you know, a lot of our kids in foster care and adoption deal with. So, I mean, it's not just foster care and adoption. It's really any kind of trauma can set a child up for these things. But um, Absolutely. I, I want to say to foster parents who are listening um, this is so important to get. And if you need to rewind this podcast and listen to everything Brian said again, or, and, or get your hands on the books that he writes and the materials, I can tell you years in and having talked to so many people, this is so right. And, um, if we only focus on behavior, we will constantly be one step forward, two steps back. I can't tell you how much time I have spent on behavior charts, sticker charts, reward systems, um, you know, um, pleading, begging, crying, you know, probably contributing more stress, more stress to my child, children who struggle. And when, when my husband and I got this, and it took us a, uh, several years for this to sink in, um, this is when we started to see actual change. And so I, I just wholeheartedly echo what you're saying. Um, I would love to talk and, and maybe ask you to talk a little bit about this idea that it, it, it over and over in this book study I did over the summer with a group of, of foster parents who um, we went through your book, Beyond Consequences, together. Um, and we kept coming back to you. It really starts with the caregiver. It starts with the parent. Maintaining a calm affect as much as possible, um, responding with calmness and love. Can you talk about the importance of caregivers? And because you've talked about this in your in your um, daily doses, also, um, can you talk a bit about that and maybe some tips for how to do that when you yourself are feeling triggered and you yourself are feeling in a in a heightened state of stress because of the phone calls from the school and the, you know, the um, mm -hmm. stuff that's going on at home. I think the thing about that, Christy, that becomes, becomes so imperative is that children's regulatory systems, the way they learn to regulate stress, the way they learn to regulate cortisol, which which requires oxytocin, which is a learned, is your brain's anti-stress hormone. It's a learned response in your brain. So if a child fundamentally is unable to regulate their behaviors, it is because they are deficient in oxytocin. And in order for them to develop a healthy oxytocin response, they require adults to teach them. So the reason it becomes so imperative for the caregiver to lead the way is that the caregiver is literally teaching the child's brain how to regulate stress. A dysregulated caregiver cannot teach a child how to be regulated. And I used to say to parents all the time, your child cannot grow emotionally beyond you. Your, your child can only grow within the capacity that you're willing to grow. And I didn't really know exactly what that meant. I just knew that 
the, the, the extent that we expand ourselves is the extent within which our children can grow because we are, we're their social emotional containers. And so what I know now is that our, our willingness to look at our own, our own triggers, to look at our own past experiences, to look at our own reactions and our own, our own behaviors and our own fear and our own stress creates a, a template for our children to learn to be able to do the same. So we are actually teaching our children how to become more mindful, and a mindful brain is a regulated brain. A mindful brain is a brain that's, that's capable of honoring and acknowledging stress and fear in the moment, and then because of that honoring, making a different choice, and that, that choice is, is love. And so... It's so overwhelming for us because we've spent so much time in our society. We have so generations and generations of trauma and and amygdala conditioning, which is always looking for a threat. And it's always not only is our, our brains always looking for a threat, but we're always weighing it against against past experiences, past similar experiences. But the similar is a vibration. The similar is not necessarily a similarity in the physical exchange. It's a similarity in the vibration that your brain remembers and that stores. Because memory is just stored vibration. Memory memory is not um, a a cognitive experience. It's a stored vibration with a cognitive framework. And so... When, when children are acting out and parents get triggered, it's because the vibration that's being emitted by the child triggers the, the, a, a vibration and experience within the parent that is resemblant to something that they experienced before. Yes. And so I always say that emotional reactivity stems from unfinished business. Yes. The moment you find yourself being reactive about something or someone, it has far less to do with that person or that situation and far much more to do with yourself. Yes, yes. We In our group, there were two things that came up that really were turning points, I think, for this recent group that um, we were working through this book together. And one of them was... Um, early on when we were talking about the fear and love, the two, you know, the, the, everything that we do comes out of fear or love. One of the other moms in the group said, I have to tell you, I don't really feel that I fear. I feel anger. She said, I feel angry about the things that this child's doing. I feel angry when they're destructive. I feel angry. And I Mm -hmm. said, you know, it's interesting though, when we press back on that and we really talk about it, anger is a lot safer of a feeling than admitting that we're feeling afraid. And so we sort of took some time to go back and cook. Hey, let's like, let's give this the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, what is it if if we were looking at this as if it were fear instead of anger and we realized, okay, yeah, I'm afraid this child's never going to change. I'm afraid that we are going to be dealing with this forever. I'm afraid we're going to go to a restaurant and they're, you know, going to, to ruin the whole, the whole outing for the whole family because of their behavior. I'm afraid that they're going to end up in prison for the things that they're doing now when they're like six or eight years old. So it really is, it's like, but it manifests as anger. But when you're willing to like step and take, take a step into that and go, okay, but what, what am I actually afraid of here? You can actually trace it back to fear pretty quickly, but anger Mm -hmm. just feels feels stronger. Anger feels like a stronger emotion for the parent, but it's actually still, it's still fear. And so I just, you know, I say that. Anger is a safer, it's a a safer um, cognitive framework. 
So when we, we when we're when we're in anger, we're in a protective state. Yes. See, when we're in fear, we're in a vulnerable state. Yep. But the anger is a mask for the fear because we feel like we need to protect ourselves in that moment, and we really don't. And that explains a lot of what our kids do, because I look at, you know, I've had a number of children who've come through and just explosive anger, right? Like explosive over the, what we would say are the smallest things, but mm-hmm. to them, they don't feel like the smallest things. They feel huge. They feel life and death, you know? So, um, the other, the other thing that, you know, just to echo what you've said, you, you wrote in your, I remember one line in the chapter on lying, and you, it, um, you wrote, who lied to you? Um, that going back in your history, if you react to lying like I do, I mean, my natural reaction is so huge. If somebody lies to me, like you might as well have stabbed me, you know? And, I, and that question, who lied to you, was such a pivotal thing for me to go, why do I react the way I do? And other people don't, you know? Other people are able to let things roll. So like for, for people listening, doing a deep dive into your own history is probably one of the best things you can do to be prepared to um, really help and love and care for your children. So, yeah, that wasn't a question. It was just a echoing of what you said. (laughs) So, amen. 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 So, um, let's talk a little bit about fear to love. Cause this is, this is a newer thing that you've been working on. It's kind of, and um, you're offering f- copies of this. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with that resource? So fear to love was another book that I wrote. It was actually a follow up to beyond consequences. Um, and it, it just, it was written more specifically towards adopted and foster children. Um, just because that's kind of where my heart is, because that's where my, my life's experience is at. And so it's a similar book to, uh, Beyond Consequences. It just, it just speaks a little bit more in the overall application of the stress model and seeing these kids differently and how we can be more empowered to understand them. So much of everything that I do is about helping people just to understand themselves differently so they can understand their children differently so they can help their children understand themselves better. And that's really what fear to love is. And so fear to love book.com. Basically we're just doing a, it's a call it a free plus shipping um, model. And we actually give people the audio to the book as well. So they pay the shipping and handling and we ship them the book. And then they also get the audio and it's just a way to try to continue to get the word out about the model and, um, you know, lower, lower as many, as many barriers to entry for people to learn about this way of seeing children as possible, because it's just not that common. And it's not instinctive. I will say everything about this has been so counterintuitive for me from day one, Mm -hmm. from day one, I have had to battle my own, uh, instincts and, um, my, the way I've seen the world, because I was raised by the parents who gave birth to me, never had any 
significant childhood trauma. I mean, I can look back and see things that were hurtful, you know, friends at school, boys who rejected me, that kind of thing. I was never abused. I was never, you know, I wasn't adopted. All of those things that kind of we know now contribute to very early Mm -hmm. trauma. So when I found myself parenting, I was going to do it. And my husband also, we were planning to parent the same way that we were parented. It worked for us. We have a good relationship with Mm -hmm. our parents, you know, and it didn't work. (laughs) So so we had to go back and start from scratch. And I think um, recognizing that this isn't intuitive and for people who want to do it and do it well and do it for the long haul, you really do need to do this deep dive. Um, What are some of the other resources? You have the Post Institute. Um, What are some of the other things that you're doing? And I know the Daily Dose, I have recommended that on my Facebook channel. I'll, um, you know, I'll recommend it again right now. Um, You are just, you're kind of, you've got this steady stream of content. Can you talk about some of the other things that you do, um, the things I've already mentioned, but other things that you do to kind of resource parents? Well, one of the things we're doing right, well, we've all, Christy and I have always been, Christy's my partner in the Post Institute, we've always been um, adamant about educating people and just getting the education out there as much as possible. So that's why we do the Daily Dose. And, um, you know, our website has tons of resources. We have a YouTube channel and all that stuff. But one of the things I'm doing right now, and I I lecture um, probably 20 times a year, maybe not nearly as much as I used to, but I'm I'm out there usually speaking to someone. And um, But one of the things that's exciting that I'm engaged in right now is – a wraparound program for adoptive families in Northern California. And it is an opportunity for us to take adoptive families who are at risk of disruption or placement out of home placement and wrap all of these services around the home to not just maintain the placement, but to repair and restore the relationship. And so that's been really exciting to see and to watch unfold because my my mission, and I always tell my team this, our goal is to reduce the stress of the parents. If we reduce the stress of the parents, it helps them be more available to the children, and healing can happen that way. But it's interesting you said something. It made me think about something a long time ago. I gave a talk, oh gosh, I'm going to say it was probably 15, 16 years ago, at an attached conference, the Association for the Treatment and Training and the Attachment of Children. And I was one of the, I think it was a keynote talk, I'm not sure, but I said to the audience, I said, this is going to be a a new paradigm um, for what you guys are used to. And uh, because attached at that time was very consequences, uh, very much love and logic. Foster Klein, Jim Fay, kind of oriented, and then uh, then just a lot of other crazy stuff that people figure out to do to children, which I just have a hard time understanding. But I said this is going to be different than you're used to. And John um, Richard Bowlby, Sir Richard Bowlby, um, John Bowlby is the father of attachments, known as the father of attachments. His primary work was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, Well, and he's passed away now. He passed away in the 90s, but his son, Sir Richard Bowlby, was was in the audience because he was there to give – he does some attachment talks. And he said his his ears perked up when I I told him that this was going to be something different. You know, he was looking to hear something different. And 
he said, and everything you said make, made perfect sense. It's exactly what my dad used to talk about all those years ago. And it's so true. It's so true. It, it's counterintuitive because our society is geared towards stress and fear. But it's not counterintuitive if we are just the loving, aware, mindful beings that we have the capacity to be. Then it becomes very intuitive parenting. It's counterintuitive because there's so much fear in our society. But it's very intuitive in its actual application and practice. We have to, oh gosh, though, it, it's, it's, it is so hard to live in the world of consequences. And that, I mean, I have said a number of times about one of my children in particular, the world, I mean, we can create in our home a world for him to thrive in. And that's, we do, we, you know, do that. But I'm keenly aware that where he thrives the circumstances that he thrives in are not the circumstances outside of our doors. And so I think that's where a lot, I know that's where a lot of my fear comes from is that he is getting closer and closer. The older he gets to being launched into a world where people are not going to care about the past that he has and the trauma he's experienced and why he's so dysregulated and, and that. And so I think that's a lot of my fear is preparing him for a world that doesn't care the way that the people we surround him with care. Do you know what I mean? You know, the beautiful, the beautiful part of that, though, is it is what you are offering to him through the repetition of the relationship and the environment in the home that is actually strengthening his brain to help him deal with an insane world. It's not the world that's got to adjust to him. It's going to be his ability to adjust to the craziness in the world. And by helping him develop the the skills and the tools and the, the brain wiring, the hardware for regulating stress and fear, you're setting him up for success. And so a lot of times we, you know, parents, parents really get bought into the fear of, you know, well, I can raise my child this way in my home, but the world's not this way. Well, that's okay. The world is the world. It's how we it's how we deal with the world that makes all the difference. And it's not the people, the, the people who were, who were raised in their homes, the way the world operates. So, you know, a lot of those people are as dysfunctional. Well, one of them's right, running the country, oh. but there's, there's a, a mm -hmm. lot of, you know, a lot of those people are struggling. And so, you know, we have to be willing to step out and face our own fears so we can bring our children present our children to the world in a way that hopefully they can have some impact in this insanity we live in. And change the world that we live in. Yeah. To be more mindful and more loving and more, um, yeah, no, you're so right. You're so right about that. Um, yeah. It, side note, it is kind of fascinating to take a step back and look at our president from the perspective of what happened to you. Like what happened to you as a kid oh, sure. that, <laughs> that turned you this way. But anyway, I'll probably edit that out. <laughs> but, um, but well, it's very, it's very relevant because yeah, it, see, that doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be demeaning. It's just very relevant. These are just the facts. You have someone running a country who was in a military school at the age of 13. And that is traumatic. That in and of itself, not to mention 
being raised in an environment that would put you in a military school at 13. Right. And then what the focus becomes on, that just creates a lot of arrested development. And I think we continue to see it. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I would love to talk, get back to, to um, the topic of attachment, because there's a question I wanted to ask you about that is very relevant, I think, to people who adopt out of foster care. So um, when, so we have had children who came to us from the hospital, and we have had children who came to us at just shy of 16 years old, and we've had everybody in between. And so I know that there's a very different attachment experience when you have a new baby or even a five or six month old baby or even a one or two year old that you're starting with versus um, an older child who presents for the first time in your home within hours, days, or weeks, however long that period lasts, um, with significant challenges. And the, the, the work of attaching with a child who has, from, the, from day one of you knowing them, severe behavioral challenges is really different from attaching with a baby who came into your home at five days or five months or even, you know, a year and a half or something old. Um, can you talk to foster parents who first met their children when they were, say, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old? And what does attachment look like? Because there are a lot of books on, I mean, you know, I, I know attachment models where you don't, you're not more than five feet away from your child for the first, you know, however many weeks or months they're with you or, um, but that's not possible with like a 15 or 16 year old. Can you talk about what attachment looks like for kids who come into your home through foster care and then you adopt them? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, again, I want to emphasize that what makes attachment possible is a prolonged experience of regulation. Attachment is the dyadic, the two people's ability to regulate emotion together. That is the definition of attachment. And so you have to focus on the regulation. And so it really doesn't matter if the child's five days old or five years old or 15 years old. If you put primary focus on the dyadic regulation of emotion, all you're doing is making sure that you create as much consistent, predictable, regulatory experiences for that child as you can. And then when there is stress, you are making sure that you repair it effectively because secure attachment is dependent as well, as much as it's dependent on, on prolonged regula regulated states. It's also dependent on states of stress because the repair of the stress, the repair of the dysregulation, the repair of the fear, the repair of the anger, the repair of the sadness, the grief, that's what strengthens the attachment bond, which is ultimately strengthening the regulatory foundation of the child. So it's really a matter of focusing on regulation and you think, okay, so with a five-year-old, you know, you can't keep them within a certain, you know, within five feet of you or whatever 
driver all day long. But what you what you can do with a five year old is be intimately aware of what really stresses them out and how you can help them learn to adjust and feel safe in that environment and and have experiences where they can look at you as someone who can keep them safe. And I think a lot of things like with a with a with a five day old, so not from the five year old to the five day old is that we discount the in utero experience because we got them at five days. And a lot of times the anxiety that, ex- that adults are experiencing is a direct byproduct of their birth experience. They're, they're experiencing the anxiety of their mother, the anxiety of their father when they were in the womb, and that it's all pre-verbal so they don't realize that when they're 40 years old and they're experiencing this anxiety or this anger, this loss or whatever, that it has nothing to do with the life that they've that they've lived it has everything to do with the life that they lived in the womb and that carries that carries with them so a lot of times what parents end up doing who have five-year-olds who are difficult to console or or have challenging uh, with attachment is that they'll blame themselves and then that just creates a whole nother level of of uh, of guilt and judgment dynamics in the family and then with the 15-year-old, we had, I love teenagers, um, and I love the conflict that we have with teenagers because we don't realize, we forget that teenagers are moving towards independence and adulthood, but they are intermittently as regressed as they were when they were two years old. So, and that's because the brain's on fire and it's going through a lot of changes. But then what we don't realize is that we are just as stressed out about them moving to adulthood. So we get as clingy as they try to get independent. And when we get clingy as they try to get independent, then we're creating this dynamic tension between the parent and the child. And what we have to do with teenagers is we have to realize that they're moving towards independence and we have to give them the flexibility and the leeway to go out there and screw up and mess up, or at least the control in knowing that they can make a bad choice if that's their desire. See, we, we always want to take the, the potential for bad choices away from our children, but that's how we learn. We learn by a series of bad choices. We all do. You don't learn by making good choices. You learn by making bad choices. So you can say, I don't want to make that choice anymore. And so we, we, we have to calm ourselves down and give them that flexibility and that leniency uh, to, to step out there in the world and realize that they still have a nest that they they can come back to. They don't have to quite jump just yet. But if we if we try to become controlling, then we're just going to create that dynamic tension that pushes them away even more. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Oh, gosh. This is so good. Man, I can't believe I'm talking to Big Papa. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm, like, I'm actually more. talking to you. I've been reading your books for years. I'm like having a moment here. I'm like, wow, this is so good. And, and I just... You know, I think um, the fact that you have, you know, just spent hours and hours and years and years um, talking with families, it just shows because you, you know, this is, um, there are, every family is different, every story is different, every child is different, but there are these similarities that are kind of universal to humanity. And if we can, if we can get this and if we can realize, you know, 
Um, I will say that I think, I think a lot of what you write has been as helpful to me personally and like helping myself deal, you know, just sort of identify and deal with my own stress factors in the world and, you know, finding ways to, to see the things that happen, um, through a different lens. It's just, it's very, it's, it's life altering. It really is. So, um, and, and until I could, until I could start doing these things in myself, I could not do them for my kids. I can't echo that strongly enough, how true it is that, um, we can only give our kids what we ourselves are, are, you know, have found or are finding. So, um, you know, this is, this is an interesting, that brings up an interesting thought and it reminds me of a conversation I had with a dad the other day. He fundamentally, so I'm, I'm, I'm spending time with the, with the mom and the dad and this man, they've been married 20 years. He fundamentally did not believe that he deserved love. And he, he, you know, goes all the way back to his own childhood, all that stuff he's aware of. We've looked at it, talked about it, and processed some of it. But when they get stressed, he fundamentally, a 48-year-old man, did not believe that he deserved love. And, and the significance is by helping him honor that, by helping him to own that, he can relax into the fact that he very well does deserve to be loved and he has people who love him. But even more than that, he can really honor for his children, their own fears and insecurities about not being good enough and not feeling like they deserve love. That's the even bigger thing by him really being able to honor himself. He can then turn around and honor his own children. And by that evening, he sent me a text Just said, thank you so much. He said, things are already changing. Things are already changing. Just from that, just from that bit of awareness that we can, that we can create for ourselves around our own, our own growth. Yeah. And it, 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 it will bring up all, I mean, this will bring up all sorts of if you really dive into this, it brings up all sorts of self-examination of your own, you know, um, history and, and to recognize, for example, I, I know that I, um, felt most loved when I was performing well and doing well and achieving and I had accolades. Um, and I, I don't want to create in my kids this sense that, the praise comes when the accolades come because if you don't have a kid who ever gets trophies or let me put it differently, you have a kid who doesn't get trophies, doesn't get the honors roll on a roll at school, doesn't get the star. I mean, at my, my kid's school, they announce a child every, every week, each class has a star student and that child's name is read over the loudspeaker. And, um, that child is, is acknowledged for their good behavior. And I think that's great. But if you are a child who has severe behaviors, ADHD, trauma history, um, self-esteem in the toilet, just, you know, you don't know how to autism spectrum disorder. I mean, all of these things that, you know, can affect a child, your name is never going to be read. (laughs) And I want, my kids to feel as praised and loved and, and affirmed when they don't have the accolades 
as the children who do. Does this make sense, what I'm trying to say? No, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And unfortunately, we place all of, that, all of that focus on the child who just doesn't behave, so he never gets acknowledged, rather than what I believe we should do. I believe we should use that as a call to arms to figure out how we can help this child feel better so that that child can get the star. Because everyone else, the, all the other kids get the stars easy. They get stars in every aspect of their life. They're just, they're star children because their brains can regulate stress. That's, that's not the child who needs the focus and the attention. If the child who's got the trauma, who's got the sensitive brain, who's, who's, who's full of fear, if, if they can get the star, then we're really doing something. So I, that that star needs to be reflective of the adults and not really of the children. But yeah, I completely get what you're saying, and I do encourage adopted and foster parents um, who who are parenting really sensitive and unique children find their strengths, find out what they're really good at, what they're really strong at, what they're really passionate about, and focus them in that with everything you've got. And it may change. But just keep focusing them on their strengths and in those areas, and they will be massively more successful and happier because they will have a sense of mastery about something. Yes, yes. Everybody needs to feel good at something. Um, and yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I loved in your book, and I know this reflects your, your years of experience working with families, is the case studies that you gave where you kind of presented a traditional, you presented a circumstance, a challenge, a behavior challenge, and then you kind of gave the traditional response to it, and then you gave the stress model response, the um, beyond consequences response. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I would love to ask you about, and this is a very personal challenge that I face, and I know other people do, um, when you have several children, um, and one of them is has severe behaviors and you mm -hmm. feel like your whole household um is about managing that child or trying to attend mm -hmm. to that child and then mm -hmm. you've got other kids who maybe then feel like oh maybe i need to start acting out more so i can get i don't know just this dynamic where um where you, you, it's not just one child and their big behaviors affect everybody. For yeah, I, I, I understand. I understand what you're saying. And, and first of all, I think, I think that it is a myth that children um, all of a sudden sit around and think, Hey, if I start acting bad, I can get more attention. I can get as much attention as, as Tommy's getting. So I, I think that that's a parenting myth. Um, children, children don't look at a, a sibling who's always getting in trouble and having problems as a role model for getting attention. Um, they usually look at that child as someone they don't want to be like, and they don't want the kind of attention that child is typically getting. So what I would say is when a child that normally isn't isn't acting in that way starts acting in that way it's because he's stressed and he's got some anxiety and instead of freaking out thinking that all of a sudden you know he's going to be difficult like the other difficult one we just have to slow down 
take a few moments, connect with that child, find out what's going on, listen to them, you know, meet that core need because that's all they're doing. They're just asking. Children don't act out for attention. Children act out because they need attention because they've gone outside of their window of tolerance for how much stress they can handle. And then, and then that causes us to regress. So, you know, this child's just regressed and just needing to feel connected. And he's probably got a really solid, a solid working with a really solid regulating, regulating, regulated brain. So it's not that difficult to repair that dysregulation that may be occurring. And then it's also a call to parents that, you know, as much as you have one that is, is pretty demanding, the other children have needs too. And sometimes it's okay not to attend to the, to the squeaky wheel why you attend to the ones that don't squeak so often. It's funny because I, after I said that, after I just asked you that question, I was reflecting on a circumstance in our home recently where um, one child was high, the, the one who's often highly dysregulated and um, I can just count on, you know, like clockwork, the big reactions. And meanwhile, another child took it upon herself to go into like little mother mode and she got all the cleaning supplies and went and cleaned the bathroom while I was handling this other child. And I just thought I felt proud of her and I felt extremely guilty. I was like, what made this six-year-old think that she needed to go clean the bathroom, you know, while I'm over here trying to handle this other. So I just, you know, it, it, it really was like, wow, Mm -hmm. I felt this, I felt this combination of pride, but then I was like, so proud of her and what have I done that my six-year-old feels like she needs to go clean the bathroom? And I, you know, I don't, I think she just, I don't know what, if she was doing, I don't know what made her want to do that. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, this is no joke. This is no joke what we're talking about here. So, um, I'd love to ask you as we sort of wrap up our conversation, I'd love to hear some success stories of families that you've worked with over the years where you've seen dramatic shifts. Can you tell us about any particularly really challenging circumstances where you have seen um, dramatic shifts? I guess just to encourage us of what's possible. You know what the, the, the really rewarding the really rewarding part of having been doing this for so long is that I've worked with children who were, who were five and who are now 25. They were, they were, they were 12 and now they're 27. And so I've, I've had the rare um, fortune to see the children I've worked, worked with grow up and it's a really cool thing. And I, I tend to not, focus on that a lot because there's always some, some devastated child or family that's, that's getting the focus. But, um, I, I have kids that, you know, they were, parents were completely, um, desperate and stressed out and didn't know where to go. Kid was fall, you know, failing out of school. And now he's, this one particular kid, he's in a band, he's got a girlfriend, he's got a job of another kid who's, who's now a pilot. He was in a residential for years and years and years. Um, I've got a kid who, when she was, when she was, she came to us when she was 16. Um, and in her psychological file, it says she was incapable of human attachment. Now she's 30 years old and she's living her life and she's, she's, going out and she's working and she's got her own place. And so it's just, 
it's a varied it's a varied um, bag of success. But what I always just want to tell parents is, as long as you're breathing, there is hope for for a shift in your child. And relationship is the single most important thing. Relationship is the only thing that matters. Because parenting doesn't stop at 18. A lot of times it starts at 18. And you want to have a strong enough relationship with your child. Now is the time to invest in the nurturing of the relationship so you can influence your child throughout the lifespan. You want to be able to use your wisdom and your maturity to influence them lifelong. But if you if you divest all of that time and energy into fear and control and blame, then what happens is you're severing the relationship. So the time, adolescence specifically, when you need the influence the most, you have it the least. And so I really encourage parents, put your focus on the relationship Everything else is going to be okay. You know, your child is going to go through the struggles, and they're going to have the struggles that they're supposed to have because we all have life struggles. You know, Deepak Chopper says you cannot prevent the future, but you can influence the future from the present. And it's very simple. What are you focused on in the present? Are you focused on stress and fear because that's what's going to show up in the future? Or are you focused on Love and relationship and understanding and awareness and kindness and empathy and all that good stuff, because if that's what you're focused on, that's what's going to show up in the future. So good. Um, I will tell you, as I've already said a couple times, it took me a long time for this to sink in what you're saying and a lot of what you're saying. So if if foster parents are listening and they're just you're just kind of like living in a constant state of stress like I was for a long time, keep pressing into this idea, these words, um, read and reread and, you know, check out Brian Post's Daily Dose on the Post Institute Facebook page. So good. I love that you do that. So I hope you keep doing that. Um, And then, you know, and there are other resources too. I mean, um, we've been helped by so many different, you know, different resources that are aimed at helping parents to connect with their children. And um, really, it is about that. It is about seeing your child where they're at, loving them where they're at, um, finding it in yourself to, to, you know, give grace to yourself. You had a recent daily dose where you, you talked about like trying to lift the guilt off of parents who feel like, you know, we've, and even you talked earlier about like helping families who haven't been taking this approach and maybe have been parenting children with trauma backgrounds and, you know, have been, um, taking more of the consequence approach and the harder to then do some repair work. Um, I love what you're saying about that. It isn't, we're never past the point of finding some healing and, and starting this work, even if our kids are older and we've gotten it we've been taking, you know, an unhelpful approach for some time. Never, never. And I, I, I will just, I will say that my sister that I grew up with, we were biological. She was adopted too. She struggled mightily. And she was probably the single greatest reason for me to ever engage in this work. She and I didn't have a relationship until we were 27, until I was 27 years old. She was 26. So that's just, you know, from a simple perspective, it's just never too late. And once we restored that relationship, it was, it was strong and it was good and it was deep and meaningful and solid. And 
it's never too late. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't, you know, it could be just a, a friend that you haven't connected with in a long time that maybe you had a falling out with. It's never too late to choose thoughts. It's I, just not. I couldn't say it better myself. That is just so encouraging. And I, I hope we can all take that approach every single day with what we're doing. Um, I have for a final question, kind of a personal one. Um, did did your parents get to see, have they gotten to see the work that you've done um, over the years? Are they aware or have they been? I don't know if they're still here or not. Oh, yeah. my uh, So my, my father that raised me, he passed away 15 years ago, but I was, I've, I've been burning it at both ends of the candle for a long time. So he got to, he got to definitely see and experience some of the stuff that I've been doing. And then I'm actually in reunion with both of my biological parents. So they're, they're aware of all the stuff that I'm doing. And I, I've oftentimes said to my biological mother um, that she has no idea how many people she has helped to influence the direction of their life by making the choice not to have an abortion with me because she she was supposed to have had an abortion. And so when I called her 37 years later and said, hey, I think I'm your son, she said, hang on a minute, I, let me call you back tomorrow. And uh, I said, okay. And she actually ended up calling me back 30 minutes later. She said, I had to tell my husband because he, when she got pregnant with me, he was in Germany and he told her to have an abortion. And so she said, okay. And so 37 years later, the only people that knew I existed were, were her and her older sister, my aunt Gloria. And, um, I just, I tell her that all the time, you know, your, your courage to, to see me through into this world has, has made a big difference. Oh, wow. I did not expect that, Brian. I'm so floored. That is so incredible. And um, how proud they all must be. And um, I, I can only, gosh, I can only pray and hope that my kids will grow up and have the same um, just just love, full cup of love that you have and compassion and mercy and, you know, to, to really, I mean, you, you have improved the world for so many families and I'm so grateful for your work. My therapist who Thank recommends you. your work is, uh, yeah, just so grateful. She um, recommends you to everybody and she's thrilled to know that I'm talking to you today too. So thank you so much for your time. I hope everyone will, will click on over to, I'll put all the links um, in the show notes today of where they can connect with you and the work that you're doing, books you've written, um, Facebook posts you put up. Thank you for everything you do. And I hope our paths will cross again at some point in the future. You betcha. You've been listening to a fostered life podcast for more information and resources for foster parents please visit afosteredlife.com where you'll find blog posts, recommended books and resources, YouTube videos, and social media links so you can connect with others on the foster parenting journey. If you're interested in supporting my work at A Fostered Life, please go to afosteredlife.com and click on the tab Support My Work. That will take you to my Patreon page where you can become a patron. Just $1 a month helps offset the cost of producing these videos and enables me to offer them freely to new and prospective foster parents, and I'm grateful for the support of my patrons. I also offer bonus content to people who support my work, so head over there and see what I'm talking about. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening, and thanks for caring about foster care.